what a blessing to hear you sing, How Great is Our God. A wife was making breakfast of fried eggs for her husband, and suddenly her husband burst into the kitchen and said, Careful, careful, put on some more butter. Oh my goodness, you're cooking with too much butter. Turn them, turn them, you're going to burn them, turn turn them. Oh, we need more butter. Oh my goodness, where are we going to get more butter? And they're going to stick. You be careful, careful. I said to be careful. Now the oven's too hot, it's too hot. You never listen to me when you're cooking. You never. Don't forget the salt and don't forget the pepper. You know you're always forgetting to salt them. Don't you ever get it? And the wife stared at him. What in the world is wrong with you? You think I don't know how to fry a couple of eggs? And the husband calmly replied, I just wanted to show you what it feels like when I'm driving. (laughs) I suspect some of you are going to feel a little bit like that guy today. Because we are going through the parables of Jesus. And today I have the task of preaching what is commonly called the parable of the rich fool. And it has to do with money. And I've preached on this parable before. And you might think, oh no, he's going to nag us about money again. Now, I've been here almost 10 years, and we do talk about this subject periodically for three reasons, basically. Number one is the least of reasons, but it's, it's out of desperation. My first ministry leaders that I attended here, after I got here, I remember the finance team gave a report, and it was not pretty. In fact, it was pretty desperate. And we had no choice but go into a stewardship campaign immediately, and this is one of the texts that I preach from. And so we have talked about stewardship several times over the past 10 years because we needed to, but that's really the least reason for it. A second reason, simply it is a major topic in the Bible. You can't preach the Bible without preaching this. And Jesus talked about it a lot. This is not the only parable where he talks about our attitude toward wealth. And I really don't mean to be a nag, but apparently Jesus is. And he knows something about human nature. So it's in the Bible. And then the third reason, it's just a part of healthy discipleship. We talk and sing about glory to God and all to Jesus I surrender and he's my all and I love you, Lord. Well, well, if you love someone, you give to them. It's true of any relationship, but I don't care if you give to the church. You know, this is not a fundraiser thing. What's important is have the right attitude, and if we have the right attitude, the giving will take care of itself. I do care a little bit about what you give to the church, but anyway, that's beside the point. First thing to notice about this parable, it is not directed to everyone. It is directed only to rich people. So if you're poor or you're average, this is not to you. But if you're rich, this text in this sermon is directed at you. If you are wealthy, it is a blessing and and good for you. And Jesus tells the story so we will keep it a blessing and not mess it up. This parable is usually called the parable of the rich fool because he messed up on how he handled his finances. But why does Jesus select a small part of the population and speak only to them? Why pick on rich people? Does he need their money? No. Apparently, he knows that people with money have, number one, special challenges that only they face. They have special opportunities that only they have. And third, they have special needs that others do not have. People who have an abundance have unique temptations and unique advantages. And by the way, Jesus talks to poor people and their attitude about money as well, because poor people have unique challenges and temptations as well. So what are the challenges facing wealthy people? Well, one, quite simply, is abundance. And believe it or not, abundance causes stress. Rich people have to figure out the best way to use all that money. You know, how much for kids' college, how much for retirement, how much for insurance. We've got to make the right investments. Do I buy my teenager a car? And, and if I do, do I, who pays for the gas and the insurance? Uh, money just causes problems. You can even lose sleep over it. Ecclesiastes talks about that. 
You even have to figure out what to do with your animals. Should I spend $1,200 on a surgery for the dog? See, poor people don't have those issues. They can't get a $1,200 surgery for an animal. Lots of money means lots of stress. There's also social pressure. When you have money, you have a pressure to look a certain way, have a certain style. The rich lady stands in front of the closet and looks at her closet full of clothes, and she says, I don't have anything to wear. Well, this is a problem only rich people have. Poor people would just shake their head. They don't understand that at all. When poor people say they have nothing to wear, they mean it. And rich people have to make decisions others don't. There's so many options when you have an abundance. The rich man goes out in the garage and looks at the car and says, I think we need a new car, even though the old car is running fine. And it creates anxiety because how do you know when you need a new car when you don't really need a new car? You see the dilemma? I mean, what is a need? What's that mean? And, and poor people don't have to worry about those kind of things. They don't have a lot of choices. So Jesus, who loves everyone, including wealthy people, wants to address them. So what's he saying? What's his advice? Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is not the parable here. This is a lead-in to the parable. This guy asked a question about inheritance, and we don't know what else is going on with his family, but there's a family squabble over money. Happens a lot. And this is, again, only problem rich people have. Poor people have nothing to leave their heirs, so they don't worry about inheritances. So this is another challenge. If you have money, it can affect relationships. It can cause division, tension, anger. When I preach on it, sometimes people get angry People don't get angry if I preach on prayer. They don't get angry if I preach on faith or service. But money, yeah. Why? It is such an explosive issue, and, and it strains relationships. So what's Jesus tell this guy? What would be your advice, someone asked you, about the inheritance? He could have said, well, talk to your brother and see if you can find a compromise and work it out. Don't say that. He could have said, did your mom and dad leave a will? Don't say that. He could have said, get a lawyer. He doesn't even answer the man's question. He goes deeper. Verse 14. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, here's the gist, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. First of all, Jesus does as he often does. He comes back with a question, who made me the judge? Basically says, I'm not going to get involved in your petty Pretty squabble, squabble here. And then he gets right to the warning and right to the heart of the issue. Danger is lurking. You be on guard. You watch out. You're in treacherous territory. You're in danger and you don't see it. And Jesus wants to lift off the blinders. And many of these parables are exactly that, to reveal, open our eyes to a new way of thinking. Someone said that greed is like a termite. It's out of sight but boring deep into our hearts. And I might add destroying as well. It's there, but we don't see it. This man has termites, and he doesn't know it. And Jesus is doing him a favor by taking off the blinders. And he says, you beware of all kinds of greed. Apparently, there's more than one kind of greed. Chad Hovind, in his book, Godonomics, lists at least four kinds of greed. One, which is hoarding, the most obvious one. This is a temptation for those of you who are good savers. This is someone who prides himself in handling money well, doesn't overspend, doesn't go deep into debt, maxes out his IRA, and of course, everyone should be saving. The Bible talks about saving. However, greed in the life of the saver leads him to hoard it all for himself. He believes he can't be generous because he needs it. 
The hoarder is insecure about the future. He trusts money more than God with his future. And hoarding drives him to ignore the needs of anyone else around him. A hoarder falls into the trap of using all his resources to benefit only one person, himself. Another form is overspending. This form of greed is the temptation for the impatient person. The overspender confuses needs with wants and as a result spends more than his income allows, thus leading into debt. He or she wants things now and is willing to uh, go into debt and, and so he won't have to wait. The overspender lives for the present. He cannot practice delayed gratification. See, the hoarder is about the future. Overspending is about the present. I want it now. Another form is comparison. This is the competitive person. He or she thinks that it's imperative to match the lifestyle of other people. Keep up with the Joneses. It drives him or her to spend and keep on spending as a way to show that he or she is equal with his neighbor or friend or co-worker or relative. This form of greed, of course, is much like envy. And it's a sign of low self-esteem because he or she needs money to prove himself. And greed is also behind the feeling of entitlement that some people have. The sense that someone owes you something. An entitled person says, I don't have money for it, and so somebody else should pay for it. And, and I deserve to have it, but I don't have to work for it. And the world is promoting all four of these. Hoard, spend, be the envy of your neighbor, you deserve, and we've been brainwashed. Our culture is being brainwashed just like this man, and Jesus wants to unbrainwash us. He wants to open our eyes because he loves us. Beware. Watch out. When you leave here today, almost every message you receive will be the opposite of what Jesus says. So after warning this guy, he tells a story. Verse 16, he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Now that's assuming the rich man can get the seed in the ground when it stops raining. Ugh, isn't that terrible? Anyway, this is harvest time. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. You see his problem? What shall I do? I have this abundance, the problem of abundance. And that's a problem poor people don't have. And it causes stress. Where are we going to park the third car? My closets are too small. I don't have room for the lawnmower, snowblower, and leaf blower. And we have another kid on the way. What shall I do? We have so much, it causes problems. Time out. I want to take a time out here. Can we talk? You ever just get tired of having so much? Is it ever overwhelming to you? I mean, move sometimes. Best thing for you, to move. And then you realize how much junk you have. Most of you do. I mean, it is amazing. And there's times you want to just say, I need to stop accumulating. I need to decumulate. I need to get rid of stuff. I mean, it's just crazy. Now, these are problems in a rich society. What shall I do with all this stuff? Joshua Becker is a blogger about being a minimalist. And he said, I used to view Jesus' teachings on money and possessions and generosity, not stockpiling treasures on earth, as a sacrifice I was called to make. But I began to realize that Jesus was just offering us a better formula for living. In other words, cutting back minimalism, living on less is good practical sense, and it's really good for the soul. And I think most of us will acknowledge that more stuff doesn't make us happy. We see rich, unhappy people. We see poor, happy people. And I'm not saying minimalism is the answer either, or even holier, but abundance is a problem. What shall I do with all this stuff? And then he said, this is what I'll do. 
I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up, laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He does what most people would do. He does what most financial advisors would tell him to do. Build bigger barns. Hoard it. Get a bigger house, bigger closets, bigger rooms, bigger garage, bigger bank account. Rent, rent some storage space. You know, we have so much. What are we going to do? But there's a bigger problem. Implied in this text is a problem that you and I really do not want. And it's the problem of the pronoun. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I will do. I will tore down my barns and build bigger barns. I will store my grain, my goods, and I'll say to myself, mine, 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 mine. What's that sound like? Three-year-old. Mine. Someone went out of the first service. When you were talking about, I was thinking of politicians. Politician or three-year-old, what's the difference? Anyway, why, why is mine a problem besides immaturity? It's a problem because it's not true. It is not mine. And here's another challenge, ownership. This guy has been fooled, and here's part of the reason he's been called a rich fool. It's not his. Mine, mine is a three-year-old talking. And the most basic principle of godly and wise use with money, and I know I've said this before, but we have to say it over and over, because if we don't get this, we won't get it at all. I do not own it. Can you say that with me? I do not own it. It's not mine. And the ultimate owner of everything is who? God. He gives each one of us a certain amount to manage for a while. And I think the key phrase there is for a while, as we're going to see, this guy is going to die. And God says, okay, now whose is it? Jesus loves us. Don't forget that. He wants to help us. This is a loving story he's telling us. And he asks, are you really that dumb? And he says it in love. Saving all that money, hoarding it all, and then you're going to die. But God said to him, verse 20, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone, who, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. There's two key words in this text, two words that make all the difference. I believe it's the hinge of the text, two words that determine whether you're wise or foolish, and those two words are, but God. See, if you stop at verse 19, this guy is doing what most people do, and he's doing the logical thing, building better storage for all my stuff, enjoying a self-serving retirement. Verse 20 says, but God. And all of a sudden, we're in another realm. This is a whole different perspective, a whole different world. Most people live as, as, as verse 19 is the end of the story. Even Christians live that way. And as if this life is all there is, and the goal is a wealthy retirement. If there is no God, then this guy is doing the right thing. He's doing the logical thing. He's living for himself. But God changes everything. <clears throat> I got to thinking this last week as I was looking at this. This would be an appropriate text for a funeral. You ever hear this read at funerals about the rich fool? I never have and I never would. But some, for some people, if we were honest, it describes a lot of people. God says, you fool. And he didn't call him a fool for being rich. God calls him a fool because he made decisions based on this life only. He forgot the but God part of life. Now, this is a Memorial Day weekend and time when we remember, and when a country doesn't remember, it gets in trouble. And this guy has the same problem. He forgot 
He forgot his wealth comes from God. He forgot he'll be accountable to God. He forgot he doesn't own it. He forgot it's temporary. He forgot he was going to die. And so God reminds him, tonight, buddy, you are, your life is going to be demanded from you. But wait, I can't die now. I'm just beginning to enjoy this. I just retired. God, you can't do this to me. Look at all the stuff I have. And God says, exactly. And that's why you're a fool. Jesus said, this is how it is with anyone. Now he's speaking to everyone, whether rich or poor. This is how it is with anyone who is not rich towards God. So let me give you some do's and don'ts so we can avoid the trap this guy falls in and be wise in our handling money. Number one, don't be greedy, but don't be guilty. feel guilty either. There's a tension we all feel. If you're in Christ, I feel it anyway. I don't want to be greedy, but I have so much, and because of that, I tend to feel guilty. I look at some people and I feel bad because I've been blessed more than they have and I feel guilty for having more than they have. And then I look at other people and I feel bad because I have so much less than they have and I can get envious. And I go back and forth in this tension between guilt and greed. You know, sometimes I feel guilty because I have so much and then times I get depressed because I don't have enough and neither is appropriate, both foolish. Now there may be sometimes we should feel guilty because of our attitude, uh, but being rich is not a sin. And guilt will not make us wiser. Very few people say, well, we had so much guilt that we changed our hearts and became loving, generous people. No, guilt doesn't change your heart. How do you change? By grace, by recognizing our abundance in God, gratitude. Don't be greedy. Don't feel guilty. Don't be proud. Do be grateful. This guy's quite proud of himself. Don't be like that. He thinks he's special because he's rich. But did you notice how he got rich? What produced the rich crop? It says the ground. Dirt created the crop. God, who created the dirt, blessed this man. And a tendency among people who have more than they need is to think more highly of themselves. You know, I must be pretty smart because I have so much. You know, I'm better than you. But getting rich does not make you smarter or better. In fact, a lot of rich people are not very smart. This guy certainly wasn't. If you go to most financial advisors, they'll tell you to do exactly what this guy did. Most financial advisors are advising you to be a fool. Now, there's some exceptions. I know that. I know financial advisors will encourage you to be faithful with your abundance and be godly with it. Wise people realize it's a gift. They realize it's temporary. They realize it's a tool. And if you think you've earned it or deserved it, that's just bad thinking. Here's another do. Do be rich toward God, just like Jesus says here. What's he mean by that? What's it mean to be rich toward God? I'm not sure of everything, probably preach a whole sermon on this, but it surely means instead of trusting money, I will trust him. Once you gain wealth, there's a natural tendency to begin to trust in that wealth. We think, well, the more I have, the more security I'll have, the better life I'll have. And there is some truth to that because it is a blessing. But this rich man in our text thinks he has it all. And he's got the world by a tail. And the world will tell you, you can have it all. No. Not without Jesus. In fact, Jesus said you cannot love money and God. You will be rich toward one or the other. You will have to make a choice. And so he's saying, watch out. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You have this stack of money. Your kid runs off and ruins his life. What good is that stack going to do? What do you do when your kid runs off and runs his, ruins his life? Most people start praying. They turn to God. Because money's not going to help. Your marriage gets shaky. You're scared you're going to lose her. What do you do? Give her more money? You've already given her money. You can't buy love. You start praying. You turn to God. Which one are you going to trust? 
Which one are you going to love? Jesus wants you to be rich. Rich toward God. He wants you in God, full of God, God filling you, satisfying you, be rich toward him, living him, living for him. Now, who's he talking when he talks to rich people? I think most of you know it's most of us. I've talked about this before, internationally, worldwide. If you earn 37000 or more, you're in the top 4% of wage earners in the world. If you make 45000 you're in the top 1%. In Logan County, the median income is 58000 Our county is wealthier than 99% of the world. We are rich. It's us. I know we have people without jobs, and I know we have people who are struggling and people maybe that are not rich, and some certainly don't feel very rich, but many of us today have the same challenges and same temptations and the same opportunities as this guy in the parable was. Parable. Many of us have two cars or more. Many of us live in pretty nice houses. Most of us have more stuff than we need, and we ask this question, what am I going to do with all this stuff I have? Are you going to trust the stuff or trust the giver of the stuff? How do I be rich toward God? I mean, certainly trusting God more than money. It means loving God more than money. But let me suggest another thing. Be like God. Our God is a generous, giving Father. In fact, so generous, some people resent it, and there's parables told about that. To be rich toward God at least means do be generous. It's one of the primary ways to combat greed, that, that termite in your life. It's one way to be rich toward Him. Zacchaeus gave half away when he met Jesus. Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man before he met Jesus. He was even wealthier after he met Jesus, and he gave so much away because he had Jesus. He was rich. The Macedonians begged for the privilege of giving. See, when God gets into your heart, when you are so full of gratitude for what he has done, when you realize it's all his anyway, you cannot help but to be generous. A giving God just gets into you, and you become a giving people. Many of you are on this journey. I know that. In 10 years, it has been amazing how the finances here have turned around. It's amazing because the number of excellent big givers we have lost who have died or moved away. I mean, we lost a whole generation of generous people, and they were pillars that held up this church, and yet giving has improved. Because many of you have said, number one, I want to be rich toward God. I don't want to be like this guy. You said, I'm going to trust him and put my money where my mouth is. My faith is not just talk. I'm going to be like God. He's a giving God, and he wants me to be a giving child like him. And the way to be rich toward God is to be generous like him. Now, I'm in reflection mode now, a little over three months left before I step down. And so Casey and the staff and the elders are all thinking ahead, you know, what's next? And it's kind of exciting, maybe a little scary too. They're all thinking ahead. I, I, I'm thinking back. You know, what happened these last 10 years? And a lot of good has happened. Some not so good, of course. But one of the good things has been the generosity of people that has grown and how mindsets have changed and grown. And people have said, I will be rich the right way. Rich toward God. Let's pray. Lord, I can't help but to reflect on how much you've blessed this church and blessed my life, blessed so many here today. And I thank you for the grateful response by those who have said, I will trust God and be rich toward him. I will not let my blessings become a curse. I thank you for those who said, I will serve God with all my all, including my possessions. So let us never forget 
let us remember it is all yours. Let us remember it's all temporary. And it is just a tool to bless others and to advance your kingdom. May we always be rich toward you. Through Jesus.